This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, but who cares? More interesting, more delightful are my co-hosts. Uh, MD, PhD student Aline Sanduk is here from the internet. Where I pretty much live. <laughs> uh, M2, Jessica DeHaan Hello. has joined us. Welcome. Uh, M4, Ann Nora is here for the first time. Hi, everyone. So glad to have you. And M4, Marissa Evers has sidled up to the mic. Happy uh, to be back. Yes. Fresh from her clerkship today, I think, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and if you thought that was all shortcuts, well, y- you've never been more wrong. Uh, because joining us also from across the internet is uh, Dr. Danielle Ofri, professor of medicine at NYU, internist at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, and author of her latest book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. It's an honor to welcome you to the show, Dr. Ofri. Thanks. It's great to be here, David. So your your, uh, your new book, it deals with uh, medical error, and, um, and uh, it's a difficult subject, I imagine, for a... Uh, a physician to to discuss. I do remember reading not many years ago that medical errors uh, are the, what was it, the number three leading cause of death, uh, according to the headlines. And in your book, you said that this kind of headline was what started you on the path of writing this book. How, how, how so? Well, you know, my when you're the only doctor in a publishing house full of English majors, you get everyone's medical questions. So <laughs> one day, my editor emailed me this article, headline, and said, is this really true? Is medical error really the third leading cause of death? And and the truth is, I really didn't have a good answer. And not just because I wasn't keeping up with my medical journals, but because, you know, I, I'm a primary care internist in a busy city academic hospital. And if medical error is the third leading cause of death, I feel like I should be seeing it every day, right? Like, you know, heart failure and, and cancer and cardi- coronary disease, but I, I don't. Or it feels like I don't. And so then I got to wondering, well... Is it really the third leading cause of death? And maybe we're all just in denial. We have complete blinders on. Or or maybe it isn't. And these stats are completely overblown. And that became the impetus to start researching this subject, which as the more I dug in, the more complicated and confusing it, it got. But um, yeah, so that's how sort of I came to the topic. So, so um, you know, let's get that particular study, the number three leading cause of death study. Was that... Was there some truth there? Well, at the risk of making this into a journal club, just uh, very briefly. So for starters, it wasn't a primary study, right? It wasn't like someone, you know, put on their Sherlock Holmes cap and started examining, you know, raw data going into uh, ORs. Not at all. They just reanalyzed several previously published studies, which were already some years old at the time. So the, the data's already, you know, it was out of date. Um, and, and then uh, the issue was that they focused on hospitalized patients. And of course, hospitalized patients don't represent the entire population. As you guys well know, hospitalized patients are older, sicker, have many more things, you know, moving parts. So the rate of error in hospitalized patients is quite larger than the general public. They also uh, focused on errors that cause death. 
which is an interesting thing. You know, it's it's I, I think it's what we think of when we think about medical error, but in fact, that's a really a subset, and it's often quite difficult to figure out if a medical error indeed causes death. You have a patient dying of cirrhosis, and they're given the wrong antibiotic, and the patient dies. Well, there was an error, and there was a death. But did that error cause the death? It's very, very hard to uh, to figure that out. So the data, is, it's very hard to answer the question to begin with. Secondly, they were relying on sort of secondhand data. And the numbers were very small. In some cases, there were studies where there were 14 deaths or 15 deaths. So imagine a few deaths plus or minus either direction, and then you extrapolate to 330 million people, the margin of error can be quite big. So the, the short answer is we'll never know the answer to the question because it's really impossible to tell. There's no place on the death certificate to write medical error. So it's likely that it's probably not number three. Um, but it's also not small. So maybe it's lower on the list. So I think it's big, but I don't think it's, I don't think we have a jumbo jet and a half dropping out of the skies every single day because of our medical errors. Well, I can't help but jump in right now and say that we're all experiencing what you mentioned in your book known as the July effect as well. That we've all, <laughs> we've all leveled up here and, you know, have very happy about that. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment in, on that, the July effect, and, and how substantial you think it is. Well, the July effects. Everyone says, well, don't get sick in July. And, and Lord knows, we know why. You know why, right? On July 1st, it's such a fascinating phenomenon. In every other industry and field, you know, some people leave, new people come. Nowhere else do we have at the stroke of midnight an entire cohort of experienced, knowledgeable folks exit and then a whole cohort of greenhorns marches in and just starts all at once. I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's pretty crazy. Um, but yet that is what we do. And, you know, and everyone gets ratcheted up a notch. You know, the MS4 is now an intern and the intern is now a PGY2. The PGY3 is now a fellow. The fellow is now an attending and so on and so forth. And so everyone's new. And you're supposed to act like it's no big deal. Right? You just sort of march in, okay, now I'm a doctor. Yesterday I was a student. Um, your knowledge did not multiply. Somehow I know more today than I knew yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> right, you are still there. So, yes, yeah, so one could imagine that July is certainly a shaky time, uh, to say the least. Now, the, interestingly, the data haven't really borne out a, a huge uptick in mortality uh, in July. And there's probably a few reasons for that. One is, and I'm sure you guys know that, there's no more anal retentive species than a, you know, a fresh intern <laughs> but who is absolutely terrified and is double, triple, quadruple checking everything, probably more than anyone ever will in the history of medicine. So in some ways, people just starting out are, are three times as careful as, as those who don't. And they always ask for help and they'll really you know, not want to take any chances. Probably riskier is like the September, October intern who's got a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of confidence, and maybe doesn't ask for help as much. Also, because we're aware of July, everyone on top is really hypervigilant. You know, we, we put more attendings on the wards. You know, we um, try to really have our hawk eyes on things. So it seems to be a wash. Um, what is might be real, though, is the weekend effect. And, you know, on the weekends, we tend to have skeletal staffs. You know, people are covering each other. Not all services are, are, are happening. And I think when we have seen increased mortality, particularly things that require procedures or um, specialty consultations, things that aren't readily available. And, of course, 
the other thing is that who comes to the hospital on the weekends, you know, not the person, you know, with a sore throat, but the people who are really sick. So we also have, probably have sicker patients. But certainly weekends, holidays, and nights when staffing is uh, skimpier and people are covering more. So rather than caring for patients, we're more putting out fires. That seems to be like a, a bit of a danger zone. So I think you guys are okay in July, but please be careful out there. You know, it's funny, uh, I, your comments about how, you know, Everybody was great in July, and then in September, there was more error. And that reminds me of a previous life um, that I had, which was uh, training bus drivers. And what I noticed in the data was that, you know, they were great. You know, once you got them on the road, they were great for, you know, a couple of months. And then there would be a spike in accidents as they got more comfortable doing what they were doing and sort of could, you know, do some things on automatic. And that's when there were problems. So I... I'm going to back you up on there if you needed that backup from the bus driving world. <laughs> and it goes back to your original statement as well, that these things are hard to measure, and the statistics can be so easily skewed. Because I saw the same thing when I would work on Thanksgivings and Christmas. You hardly have any patients come in, but the ones that do are super sick. And so then if there's a bad outcome with those, you, you have a smaller denominator, and, and so then those bad outcomes get magnified than if you're trying to measure a holiday effect. So it, it is a very difficult thing to quantitatively measure. They're so... And of course, and of course it's also very hard to decide when is there an error? Uh, you know, it's a, let's say you, know, you uh, send a patient for a CT scan with contrast and the patient goes into renal failure. Well, that wasn't necessarily an error, but it was certainly an adverse outcome, right? The mm. patient wasn't planning to go into renal failure. That wasn't your intent. So, um, but does that get counted as a medical error? So, in fact, we've come to broaden the tent a bit more as patient safety, as avoiding the things that shouldn't be happening to patients, whether or not it's an intentional or unintentional error. Mm-hmm. That, that was a comment uh, that stuck out to me a lot as I was reading your book, is that like, fundamentally all these studies depend on proper documentation. And I wonder how hard it was for people conducting these studies as they're reviewing the records and I read between the lines. I, I imagine no one's gonna outright say like, that ungoofed up, patient did, <laughs> and then leave that as a record. But how do you parse, so surely there's a lot of like false negatives, in fact, like people who were harmed, but it's not evident from the record. Is that maybe part of the reason that we kind of expand the definition a little bit or like assume it's underreported? I think that's actually the reason why we'll never have great data because it's very hard. Right. No one's going to say, hey, man, I screwed up. That's very hard to do. Um, and there's a, a whole sort of basket of the near miss, right? What's a near miss? We treat it as though, oh, things went fine because the patient didn't get harmed. But a near miss just means the patient got lucky that day, right? Mm-hmm. It could have. It's still the same error, just the patient didn't get harmed. But the near miss is like the iceberg underwater of all the potential errors and harms out there waiting if the patient happens to get unlucky that day. But who reports a near miss? Who says, oh, I prescribed the wrong you know, dose of lisinopril, but nothing happened. No one's going to report that. So we're completely missing that enormous area. It's the same errors giving the wrong dose of digoxin, but maybe nothing bad happened. So we have that problem. And even if you decide you want to try and do the right thing, the other day I um, I came across a, a medication error and I thought, okay, I'll do the right thing and report this. First of all, I couldn't even find the reporting system. I mm. knew it was on the homepage somewhere. And after like six or eight tries, I'm like, well, how hard am I going to fight to do this? And I finally called someone and I finally got it. But then it's like, oh, okay, make a password, you know, with a, a figure and a you know, clap mm. letter and a small letter. I'm like, oh, God, I don't have time for this. And it's they, it's almost like we don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So it's, the, it's such a disincentive, you know, that you have to really fight hard. And if you're already dealing with like, I don't really want to talk about this, you know, it, it's very hard to do. And then which sort of takes me back then a step further, a step back is none of us want to talk about it anyway, because it's so embarrassing. It's so shameful and humiliating to talk about an error. I mean, we feel awful about it. Um, and we're already, you know, flagellating ourselves mm-hmm. for, for having fallen short, then to overcome your emotions to get to the point where you can talk about it, that, that, you know, it's a big ask for a group of perfectionists like us. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult if you have a punitive culture surrounding this. Um, how do we open that up so that we can improve patient safety culture? How do you as an attending do that for your, your residents and interns? Sure, I'll just mention, because obviously malpractice, you know, uh, runs behind everyone's consciousness. And and certainly in this country, where it's a very litigious country, more so than other countries. So that's another reason why there's a lot of pressure not to, why, you know, why talk about it? Why give your your head to a, you know, a lawyer on a stainless steel tray when you could just shut up and keep things quiet? So how do we, you know, get to a point where we can talk? Well, so it's really a cultural issue. So one thing for me, when I start as an attending, uh, you know, in a new month on the wards or a new group in clinic, my first thing is, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Ofri. Here's the five big errors that I've made of mm. late. Um, and if we have more time, I'll, I'll give you the next dozen. So I try to be upfront of that. It's not a matter of, of if it's when you have an error and everyone has made their errors. You know, you should be able to, uh, you know, talk about it because that's the most important thing. And, and I think that we are in a place where we kind of worship heroism and, 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 you know, being cool on your feet and and not complaining and being strong. And we don't kind of give the same adulation to people who are honest and talk about their shortcomings. So Mm. that means, you know, those of us on top, whether you're the attending or you're the PGY3 on the team or the hospital director to really, you know, be honest about your mistakes and talk about them as these are the ordinary things that happen. And here's how I dealt with it. And here's how I worked to make it better. And here's how I spoke to the patient. And here's how I dealt with my feelings. All of those things together, um, you know, that's that is the more um, the more layers of complexity that, that we humans have to face. Have you been with your process of going through that with your residents um, and interns and medical students? Have you seen that other attendings have also been kind of taking that approach of being more honest with their teams as well about the mistakes that they have made or the residents that you have trained doing that in the future? Well, I I hope so. But it's it's very personal. I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone has their own comfort level. They have their own traumas of, you know, what their era was like, their their biggie, their first, their first death. uh, You know, everyone's got a first um, and how they handle it. And of course, it depends on what was their environment when it happened. Was their attending open and supportive? Was their system a place where you could talk? Or was it a place where you kept your head down and kept quiet? So we all kind of bring that that uh, baggage with us. I think in general, we're getting a little more comfortable with that. But it really has to start with the top brass. I mean, why would an intern want to speak up if they never see their residents speak up? And why would the resident want to speak up if the fellow never talks? And, and the same thing. So it really starts with the, you know, it's the chief of medicine has got to come and say, hey, let's talk about this. And here's my experience. And, you know, and work our way down with the chairs and the hospital directors, the program directors to make it. This is sort of the ordinary thing that we talk about. You know, we do M&Ms, morbidity and mortality rounds, and we talk about the pathophysiology um, and, and, you know, the differential diagnosis. But we don't talk about the shame and embarrassment, the discomfort. How did you approach the patient? What did you tell the family? All, all that part gets left out. But 
those parts are equally important. That reminds me, when I was uh, interviewing for medical school, I knew one of the questions that were going to come was like, what is one of my most memorable experiences in patient care? And honestly... And uh, we should say that you're a former PA. I am. Yeah. So I've, I was a PA, uh, still am, um, but I trained, I was working for seven years before I decided to go to medical school. So I had a quite a substantial amount of clinical experiences. And, you know, it is the ones where you look back and you think, man, I, I could have done that better. I, it was, like you said, the first patient death where I, I feel like I, I could have maybe responded quicker, you know, and you're second guessing everything. And, and I've thought that scenario over a thousand times. And so I was doing uh, practice interview questions with a friend of mine who's in a trauma surgery residency. And I was, say, I was saying, this is the story I'm going to tell because this is the one that's gotten me. And I go back and I think about how could I have improved communication? How could I have been better? And he says, no, do not do that story. You do not want to do that story in your medical interview. And and then that probably was coming from the culture where he was in. He's like, you don't want to talk about the mistake you made. You want to talk about the, the clinical experience where you kind of saved the day. And, um, and I think he was just being very honest and speaking from his experiences. And I feel that that is very pervasive in the culture that we have. You, you can't honestly you know, download your experiences and vent. And, and as you said, we don't get billed. We don't get reimbursed for a contemplative pandemonium uh, at times when we just need more time to think about how to diagnose these things better. Um, the insurance right. billing is And you don't helpful. get intern of the year for talking about your big mistakes. Yeah. Right? You only get intern of the year for the big save. So it's the whole system right. really rewards what your colleague said, your big save. That's what we want to laud and that's who we promote and that's who gets the awards on award night. Mm-hmm. Not the folks who talk about how they messed up. Mm-hmm. I got to know. What, which one did you go with? <laughs> I, well, I actually, I was not asked that question. <laughs> I thought I was going to, and they did not ask me, you know, so I got off the hook. How there. convenient for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, do. They didn't ask me, so I can't, I don't, I don't have anything. <laughs> who would have known in the moment, Dave? Who would have known what I would say? I do think like how you said you're a friend who is a trauma surgeon. It is something that it is in the culture with like the M&Ms that I've been to on surgery. It is basically they tear that situation down to the ground. And I think as a medical student, I've always felt I'm so glad I'm not the one in that position because you just feel awful for the person standing up there just getting reamed for mm. every single small decision that they made. But they don't t- like stop and think about where it's like, OK, this is what you did wrong and this and this and this. And it's not a way to like build them up. But in other M&Ms that I've been in, like pediatrics has a very different approach of like their approaches like, well, they kind of think about like, how did this affect you long term as well? Because like the death of a child, I think a lot of people can agree where it's like that is a very traumatic thing to have to experience. And nobody wants a child to die. Nobody wants anyone to die. But I think their approach to an M&M is a lot more, I guess, touchy-feely, for lack of better words, than surgeries is. And they don't necessarily like tear you down or like, yes, mistakes were made, but how can we be better? Mm. And I think that opens it up into an environment, kind of how you were saying, Dr. Offrey, where it's like how you were trained determines how you're going to approach a situation in the future. And a surgeon probably isn't going, mm-hmm. if they've always been torn down, they're mm-hmm. not going to win mm-hmm. and admit that they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember every- my first M&M was also in surgery. Um, I think it was my first rotation. And it was such a searing experience. I remember the chief of medicine, Dr. Spencer, who was this very sort of petite surgeon with this huge 
Texas-sized personality. And Dr. Spencer scared the bejesus out of everyone. I mean, even the deans quaked when Dr. Spencer went by, and the residents would flatline if he called on them. But we're in this big room, and he, he, you know, he asked for the resident who made the error to stand up. And it was actually one of my classmates, because I was also MD-PhD, so I was a little behind. It was one of my med school classmates, and she stood up. And I don't even remember what the error was, but I remember Spencer said, and I can't quite do his marbles in the mouth Texas accent. He said, well, well, why even bother operating? Just take a rifle, just take a guy out to the parking lot with a rifle and shoot the guy. Why even bother operating? Oh. And I watching the scene and the, the resident, she turned like a shade of gray. I thought, boy, we're going to get a rapid response. For <laughs> but, you know, I was the medical student. I was there to learn. I learned that one, I better never make a mistake. Mm-hmm. I better be perfect. Mm-hmm. Two, if I do make a mistake, I'm not telling anyone. Otherwise, I'll be up there getting screamed at by Dr. Spencer. And three, I'm not going out in the parking lot because I don't know what's happening with the department. It's really scary. <laughs> but that's the message we get. You either you're perfect or go work for a pharmaceutical company, right? There's no shade of gray in between. And and I recognize that, and Dr. Spencer is a wonderful doctor, and the patients worshipped him because he expected perfection, but it didn't leave much room for the shades of gray that is the natural practice of medicine. It's a very ambiguous you know, field. We, we don't have easy answers, and we make judgment calls, and, and things do happen, and there isn't a lot of vocabulary for how to deal with all the stuff in between perfection and zero. There's a small subset of errors that I think there are people who are just bad clinicians and negligent and they should be, you know, booted out of the system, they should be sued in court for all they're worth. It's a very tiny amount, but those people shouldn't get the time of day. Everything else, and I would say ninety, I don't know, eight percent I'm I'm making up a number, but some nearly every bad outcome is, is committed by a clinician who cares a lot, who's trying to do the right thing, who has made an error. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes that error is they've forgotten something, they were distracted, or even they, they did the wrong thing. But even if it's they just did the wrong thing, there's almost always a system behind it that made the error more likely. So, for example, if the nurse grabs the wrong bottle of medicine, you're right, she did that. And you could say, okay, she made an error. But why was it possible to grab the wrong bottle? Did the bottles look alike? Did they sound alike? Was there not enough light and you couldn't read the bottles? Did she have too many patients because they're short staffed so she had no time to think? Was she being interrupted every five minutes by, by people looking for ginger ale or, or you know some medical student who can't use the thermometer, all these things? So there's many reasons that make it possible, even when an error happens, that you can clearly say that person did it. Yet, there are ways to make it less likely. So I think that's why our focus should really be on the systems. And yes, we should educate that that nurse or whoever, you know, that medical student, that doctor on the error and how not to have that happen. But it's incumbent upon us to look at how the error was possible to do because we can make it less possible. That sounds very difficult. I mean, it's so much easier to just say, well, you did something wrong. Fix it. Scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Or get fired. Or you better go do, you know, uh, take six hours of this online course because clearly you're not a good enough nurse. That's our usual response. Let's re-educate that, you know, that perpetrator. But really, if you think about the errors, and I think about mine, they're almost always... Uh, there's a reason that made it more likely to happen. Often it's time. Often we're rushed. And I find that's one of the biggest reasons that we end up taking shortcuts. Um, I, there's an error, and I forgot what I about in this book or my last book. When I was at PGY2, um, we had no caps on admissions, and it was during the AIDS crisis. So it was just sort of like now, just 
packed, patients rolling in the door, sick as dogs. And the easiest way to survive was to turf your patients as quickly as possible, any place, right? It's turf in GYN, surgery, derm, wherever you can get them off. And so, so for our listeners, patient. for our younger listeners, that, that's, a, that's a term that means... Get them off your service. Get them, get <laughs> get them, them off, off to someone else's service. <laughs> right, right. So, so, I don't know, number 13 or whatever was the, you know, 90-year-old nursing home guy with altered mental status, right? The guy who's already demented. Someone says, hey, looks a bit more demented today. Admit to medicine. You know that kind of admission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I get the report. The guy's totally stable, labs fine, radiology fine, just needs to get back to their nursing home bed. I'm like, okay, this is a, I got to turf this guy. And at the time, we had this sort of intermediate care unit called IMCU, where you could put a patient who's waiting for discharge, you know, waiting for home care or waiting for the nursing home bed in this case. So I quickly called the IMCU doctor and said, this guy's totally stable, lab's fine, radiology fine, take him, take him, take him. And I pushed this patient off to another a service. My intern and I, we high five, we raced back down to the ED for our next patient, you know, 105 degrees with a Petri dish worth of stuff growing in their blood. The next day, I learned that my totally stable patient was bleeding into his skull, and that's why his mental status was altered. But I missed it because I hadn't looked at the CAT scan. Somebody said radiology fine, and I just took it, you know, verbatim and, you know, accepted that. Um, Now, luckily, someone else saw the bleed. The patient was whisked straight to the OR and got the bleed drain. In fact, the care wasn't impacted at all. The the patient did as well as they would have if I hadn't done that because we have a great system of multiple layers of oversight. But I had still made the error, right? It was a near miss because the patient wasn't harmed. But if I had sent the patient home, if the bed had been available, he could have been dead. So the error was still made. And I, of course, felt terrible. I was so ashamed that I hadn't done my due diligence as I knew I should have. I should have looked at the scan, but I didn't. I was so busy. We were so overworked and there was no time. Um, But I didn't tell anyone. You know, I was so embarrassed. I didn't tell my intern. I didn't tell my attending. And I sure as heck didn't tell the patient or their family. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could not have imagined a more horrific scenario than dragging my sorry self into the bedside and saying, hey, you know, I almost killed you. And it took me close to 20 years to write about it and speak about it. That's how long that lasted. And when I look back now, I have some empathy for my younger self. You know, I was a PGY2. I was, you know, kind of on my own, but not quite. Um, I didn't know what to do. I was overworked. Um, But it wasn't also a culture where you could talk comfortably about this sort of thing. And I think now, what a missed opportunity. Had the situation been such that I could tell my attending, she could have talked to us about how not to make the error. We could have gone to the bedside and she could have modeled, how do you talk to a patient when you've committed an error, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lesson I would have remembered. 20 kinds of vasculitis, those are gone and they're gone permanently. (laughs) But how to talk to a family about medical error, it's a lesson I would have remembered. And furthermore, I can't even imagine how many errors I committed in the wake of that one error. Because for weeks after that, my brain was in a fog, my soul was in a fog. So who knows how many subtle signs of wound infection I missed, the slightly off by car I didn't notice. So I'm sure there was a cascade of errors from that one error. Thank you so much for being so open about that. And uh, 20 years is a long time to be beating yourself up, but it's really a it's a testament to your character as a person and kind of the character of people who go into this profession that they are so deeply affected and they have no outlet um, and it just sort of leads to more problems. You know, the parallel that I was drawing as you were telling the story of like keeping these things to yourself is uh, cancel culture. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Dr. Offrey. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that if you've committed some transgression, whether it be 
saying the wrong thing, viewing the wrong opinion, or making some kind of error, it's as though you're irredeemable. Mm. And that, to me, makes me think about there's two different emotions that come into play when we make an error or do something like that. There's guilt and there's shame. And they're similar, but not quite. Guilt is about the thing that happened. And shame is about you. Guilt prods us to make amends, to fix it, to do it better next time, to solve the system. Shame makes us want to run and hide, to get under a rock and weep, which is certainly what I was feeling um, you know, when that happened. Up until then, I thought I was a pretty good you know, doctor, no better, no worse than my peers. But in that one moment, I felt like I myself was a complete failure. I better get out of the profession. Um, and of course, if you think, if every doctor or nurse who's made an error says, I better get out, there's going to be nobody left to take care of our <laughs> Um And I think we have that same thing in this, you know, in this cancel culture, except we do it to ourselves, right? We self-cancel because we think there's no room for me. If I have made this error, egregious, not egregious, you know, uh, predictable, not predictable, we have done this because, because we care. As you say, you know, I, I think in the media, we often the public gets the impression of these uncaring doctors and, and you know, uh, jaded nurses. And I think that's rarely the case. I think deep down, people go into this profession, certainly these days, do care. I mean, those who wanted medicine for fame and fortune, they've long gone to Wall Street, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a much easier way to make a buck than to spend <laughs> 10 years in, like, you know, someone's pajamas and getting vomit on your shoes, right? There's a much easier way <laughs> and much faster, too. Why, why do this? You make it sound so, so glamorous. <laughs> you know, I mean, an MBA is really fast and very clean. <laughs> you sheets, so. um, yeah, so I think the people who go into the field, certainly nowadays, do really care. I mean, there was a case of a, a NICU nurse some years back who had made a, a calculation error for calcium chloride, tenfold calculation error, and the neonate died. It was, and she was a 25-year veteran by all counts experience. She ended up killing herself, mm -hmm. um, dying by suicide. Now, there's many things in between that we don't know about. But I think all of us can recognize that sense of, oh, I am such a terrible person you know, that I harmed my patient even if unintentionally, that I should exist, not as a physician, not as a nurse, not as a human being. And, uh, you know, as we know, physicians have the highest suicide rate of any profession. And I think that is part of it. We hold ourselves to a very high standard. And if we fail, I mean, we don't need to get sued to be punished. We don't need that. We take care of it right on ourselves. We are very good at guilt, shame, and flagellation. That is our specialty. So um, lawsuits just add another layer of aggravation, but we take care of it ourselves, which is why I think that punishing clinicians, it really isn't necessary. We, we got that part under control. We do need to help them help the patients. I think the patients need to see what's going on. And often we're too devastated to be able to be there for our patients, to be honest and transparent. It's very hard when you feel like you're a failure. And so that's where I think we need to focus our, our, our resources right now. And I think it adds to the fact of how you're talking about there's the shame that we experience as well as we're expected to be perfect that I believe all of us have felt in the past of like feeling like we have imposter syndrome. Like, I made this mistake. I don't belong here. And even like day one of M1 year, I remember coming onto campus and being like, they made a mistake. Like they're going to tell me that my like acceptance was revoked, that they made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. And that feeling. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, you there. 
get out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, oh, this your Marissa? No, 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 the wrong Marissa. Like we accept a different person. <laughs> and I think like that feeling comes and goes in waves, and it kind of relates to when I've messed up, whether that be like on an exam or if I forgot to ask like simple things in a patient interview or do like physical exam maneuvers when I walk out of a room and present, and the attending goes, well, why didn't you ask that? It makes me feel like a failure, and I think that just compounds upon your training when you're the intern or the PGY2 or the fellow or whatever level of training you have, I think you start to have those feelings too of like, I miss something and I I feel shame for it. I feel guilt for it, but we don't have those outlets really to talk about it. And it just adds and adds and adds. And then you get to the point of how do we get to the point of actually talking about those things so yeah. in a healthy way? So Lucy Howard was an, is an M4 who graduated this past year. She created a curriculum devoted to exploring shame and identity in medicine. And um, uh, the, the uh, administration was pretty impressed with it. Um, and so they're integrating it into the they're integrating this curriculum into what we teach here at the College of Medicine, which I think is, you know, it, it's, it really goes a long way towards or I hope it goes a long way towards making people understand that, um, you know, f- to some extent, failure is inevitable and that uh, there are things to be learned from it without feeling shame. Um, and I'll let you in on a secret that imposter syndrome never goes away. Yeah, yeah. that's what I heard. <laughs> you know, I was during, you know, when the COVID uh, pandemic was heaviest in New York, you know, in March, April, I was talking to different people and I was talking to someone pretty high up. And he said how guilty he felt as a chief, chief of service. But, of course, he wasn't in there taking care of the patients. He was running the whole ship, which we absolutely needed. But he was played with guilt like an imposter because he wasn't really being a doctor because the administrative tasks made it impossible for him to do clinical care. And I marveled at that. And here's someone who I respect and uh, trained with, and, and uh, yet because he couldn't be on the ground. And I think we all feel that in all the time. I still do. Everyone does. You're up there giving a lecture. They hmm. Why am I giving this lecture? Why are they calling me in? You know, I don't really have any particular expertise, and it's it's part of the process. Now, I think that we can also respect that it does keep us humble that we're constantly questioning ourselves, and I think it becomes pathological when it inhibits us from processing things appropriately. But I think we can use the constructive side of that, that we should always be questioning ourselves, our judgments, the choices we make, um, but to do it in a way that isn't, you know, destructive to our, our inner core, which is often how it happens. And going back to your colleague, he was in the perfect position. We need um, more clinically trained people in those administrative roles. And I, I go back to your book when you talked about like the analogy with the aviation industry and how they have human factors engineer. I couldn't help but laugh through that part because my husband is a f- human factors engineer for the aviation industry. <laughs> and so many times when I was working and I would come home and I would tell him about these system errors and EHR, he's just like, why don't they have a human factors person review this before they roll it out? Like they don't make changes in the cockpits for the, the Navy's darling, the Blue Angels, without like a thorough simulation training, step-by-step review, everyone's on board, everyone knows exactly where the font will slightly change, you know, on the display before we put it in the cockpit for our pilots. And yet here you were talking about like new alerts popping up that you had never seen before. And I wonder what is it going to take for us to start to integrate that same mindset in medicine? I, I think it's going to have to be that we, the clinicians, stand up and say, this can't go on. 
because we've it's been this sort of administrative creep where we keep sort of add, the system keeps adding more and more stuff really onto the clinicians to do what is it sort of a work transfer what used to be administrative and clerical work you know onto uh, onto us and at some point it makes it impossible to practice medicine certainly to practice medicine well I had a, a hysteria fit uh, yesterday as I do almost every day with EMR <laughs> because every time I click on coronary artery disease which is a lot in medicine <laughs> it always asks if it's a native heart or transplanted heart <laughs> you know and I'm thinking can we just default this to yeah, native heart yeah. and for the point oh oh one percent I'll do that but you know every <laughs> single time I have to pick native heart and then for native vessels separate thing um, and it kills me because of course the system was created for billing and not for patient care mm-hmm. um, but didn't anyone sit down with a doctor and mm-hmm. do this and see mm-hmm. this is going to make you crazy and that's just one of of course 50 things every single day that make it so hard to practice medicine and actually think you know when we talk about the kinds of errors one way I often divide up errors is procedural errors, like, you know, central lines operating on the right side of the patient, um, which are pretty easy to tackle with checklists, and then diagnostic errors or cognitive errors that are very hard to checklist, and which is why we're not making a lot of progress. And part of it is to make a diagnosis, you need time to think and to integrate, and our system makes that, you know, not even close to possible. And certainly the EMR is a huge, you know, impediment to actually holding a, a, you know, a deep thought for more than, you know, a half of a microsecond. Mm-hmm. You've talked a couple times today about checklists <clears throat> and, um, you know, they've, they've, they've been a big deal in medicine for, for a few decades now, um, as a way to reduce error, but they don't always work. Um, as you said, it doesn't work in diagnostic medicine and sometimes it doesn't work because of cultural issues. You mentioned a, a Canadian, um, system where it didn't work very well. This is a great anecdote. You know, there, um, So the the pre-surgical checklist has been quite miraculous in decreasing uh, surgical um, poor outcomes. It's a very simple checklist. You know, check the name, the medical record number, the date of birth, check the the site, make sure you have the tools you need, the blood supply, yada, yada, nothing, you know, um, too revolutionary. And and it's really brought down uh, operative mortality both in high-end academic centers and even in developing uh, under-resourced countries and and hospitals. And so the Ministry of Ontario decided, okay, we're going to do this on the entire province of Ontario, right? Well, every single hospital will institute the pre-op checklist and we'll be able to show not just if a hospital, but on a large scale, how you can improve patient safety. And they did this enormous study, and in fact, the data did not budge at all. There was not one iota of improvement in outcomes. And Oof. no matter how they slice and dice the data by age, morbidity, um, uh, by sex, anything by, by pre-existing condition, nothing seemed to happen. And they had a 98% uh, compliance rate. And I think the reason it didn't work, of course, is that you know, compliance rate is this very poor metric for something working, right? Compliance just means everyone checks the box. And as you've, I'm sure, experienced, you know, to no end already, even in your young careers, that you get all these things thrown in your way and you have to get through them to get to the patient. So you must check these boxes, do these things to get to the spot where you can finally start doing patient care. So we all just check those boxes. That's not the same as actually doing the checklist. And I think that we humans, we're enamored of simple, snappy solutions. Oh, look, a little checklist, a piece of paper, five boxes, keep all those airplanes, you know, in the sky where they belong. But it matters how the system is implemented. And implementation, as you hinted at with the human factors engineering, is critical. But implementation is really boring. You know, it's all the details about, okay, 
Where will the supplies be? <laughs> Who's in charge? Mm-hmm. What do we measure? What are the uh, unintended consequences? What happens when we're short-staffed? Who's going to bring the coffee? Who's going to pay for this? You know, who's going to make up for the time to do this? All these things, if you don't address them, Mm -hmm. then people just check the boxes and nothing happens. But Mm -hmm. some middle-level manager gets a file report saying, oh, 100% compliance, Mm -hmm. and nothing actually happens. I'm on a surgical rotation right now, and so I see that uh, pre-surgery checklist um, happen every day. And I think one of the most important parts about its effectiveness at at Iowa is that the nurses really step in and say, hey, we're going to take the time to do this. And a lot of times, you know, the surgeons, they want to get to opening the patient. They want to start the surgery. But um, the nurses and the scrub techs take the time to do that time out. Um, and I think you talk about this in your book, how when we when we empower the nurses and other staff to, to speak up and say something, it, it really improves patient outcomes. You know, medicine is very hierarchical, as you well know by now. Um, and I think that people die from hierarchy because people are afraid to speak up. Um, at all levels, and no matter where you are on the totem pole, if you're toward the bottom, whether you're the patient or the medical student or the nurse or the family member, it's very hard to speak up, you know, against the, um, you know, the uh, the hierarchy. I remember I had a case which I mentioned in the book where I was a medical student. I was in a late night C-section, and uh, I got stabbed by the surgeon's um, needle. And nobody said anything. And I was too terrified to speak. And I think back now, uh, here I was, again, during the AIDS epidemic, and I got stabbed by a needle in an OR in New York City, and I was too scared to say a word. word. Mm. And for 30 minutes, I stood there holding whatever organ I was holding and did not say a word. And not one nurse, not one doctor said anything. And then I just ran out after the OR and and, and sobbed. (laughs) And, um, And I went to talk to the patient the next day. Um, I wanted to find out like who she was, and she was like a, a, a nurse aide in the Bronx. Like, oh my God, I'm sunk! And I finally, I confessed to her I was had a needle stick, and I ended up sobbing in her arms. Mm. Um, and she comforted me, um, and uh, it, it was such a, a traumatic situation. Uh, and I should have said something, of course. I got you know, I got a wound, a needle puncture, and I said nothing. So that reminds you how difficult it is to speak up and the hierarchy kills people. And so I think that having the nurses be given the official power to say, okay, we're going to stop this surgery until we know that everything is done is really important. Otherwise, you know, the nurses would just not say anything and all sorts of stuff would happen. I'd like to make a plug for PAs and NPs because I saw the same thing happen in that regard in that you, even though you were considered um, a medical provider, you know, maybe for the lower acuity patients, if you would see issues, like I remember I would have to run to three different places just to do, you know, sutures for somebody, and I would see it, patients falling in between the cracks. And when I would try to bring up how can we improve things, it's, they would just, well, you're, you're a PA, and then I'd just get completely overlooked and no one would consider my opinion. And I, after that happening so many times, I was really concerned about patient safety. And I, I did leave jobs because of that. And I always felt so mixed about that because on one hand, I was like, I feel like I should stay for these patients and try to give them the best care because it's it's really overran here uh, with issues. And then on the other hand, I was like, yeah, but if you stay, you're probably going to get in a malpractice lawsuit. And it was just a very bittersweet phenomenon. I, I left a couple jobs that way um, and I didn't know what to do. And it was a lot of times because I I wasn't given a voice at the table. I think that points to the role of culture, that a good hospital should have a culture where anyone can speak up and is rewarded for that and not made to feel ashamed or yeah. humiliated or or gets reassigned to, you know, um, a le- lesser uh, 
prestigious job. And it's really, again, that comes from the top down. And if we see our chiefs of service and our hospital administration stepping forward and talking about those sorts of things and backing up the PAs, the NPs, the nurses, the medical students, the family members who, who speak up, otherwise, right, no one's going to want to talk and, and nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I've seen a really good example of this uh, being on emergency medicine currently and kind of without getting into politics, you know, everyone knows what's been going on in society. And the emergency department came out with their own personal statement about black lives and Black Lives Matter movement. And they talked about it with the attendings and staff, as well as with the residents. And they offered a anonymous way to put in the residents' uh, suggestions or things that they were struggling with. And they actually all just spoke up right then and there. And it showed where it's like they felt comfortable and safe enough to talk to people who were seen as above them and not feel that there were going to be any repercussions for the things that they said or the things that they questioned. Mm -hmm. And it actually really solidified my decision where I was like, okay, this is the type of community that I want to be in. And Mm -hmm. like, that's something that is important to me going on the interview trail for residencies Mm -hmm. approaching where it's like, is this a program that offers that type of support? And it will actually listen to those that are kind of seen as lower on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because what you've just said there is that it's not actually that hard to tell people that you value their opinions even when it's uncomfortable. Mm. The hard part is the ego um, that gets in the way and that makes you not want to hear you know, when things aren't going well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're an ego-driven profession, and partly, I mean, we're, we're set up as a stepladder. You only get to the next level by stepping on the person below you, and, and that's terrible for patient care. And I think we could reimagine how, how we run things. And one of the, the upsides to the COVID pandemic is, you know, things that we, that we couldn't change for 25 years, suddenly overnight we could change. And it's not that hard. You actually can. You know, our, our, our whole hospital, re, the whole clinic redid itself in, in five days. We, we couldn't do this in 10 years of trying and we completely <laughs> changed. And so why can't we change some of how we run medicine, how we, we, you know, run our staff, how the administration is set up, what roles people have? We can do it. And I think now we have actually an opportunity to talk about this because it matters for us and it matters for our patients who are, you know, suffering even worse for the, for the inequities that, that come through healthcare and in our society as well. There are, there are really fundamental things that need to change. And one of them is giving people the space to express themselves, but then also kind of caring and then implementing. So listening is not enough, um, among other things. But the, I feel like honesty is not a value many people hold in a meaningful way. Right. I think also acknowledging imperfections, that in, in being honest, part of being honest is that your imperfections come to light. I mean, you only look perfect if you lie when things don't go well. So we, we need to be promoting and honoring the people who are going to be honest about things that go wrong or shortcomings and who tell the truth even when it's uncomfortable. And yet we often don't. And so I think we want to certainly, as you're looking for programs, where are places where the culture is that we, we do feel comfortable with that. And there are people who are willing to hear the uncomfortable things. Um, but it's, it's speaking up at every level when we see it. And the minute you have some I use the word power, you know, um, marginally, but, you know, a little bit of a stature to use that um, aggressively to protect those below you, to use your voice to be honest. Um, and you will get blowback. I mean, Lord knows there are things I write and not everyone is happy and in my own institution and those higher up. Um, 
And But I think it's really important. I agree with you that being honest is so important. And I think we can always um, couch it, if we need a way to couch it, in terms of uh, doing the best for our patients. Mm-hmm. Right? Our patients are best served when we are honest and forthcoming with our mistakes, with our good things, our bad things, with how the system works. And so if we frame it, not like, oh, I'm so good because I'm so honest and I'm you know such a model citizen, but this is what's important for patient care. And in that holds credence in our our culture of medicine. And let's use that because I, I do, and I don't think it's a fake thing. I think it's really true um, to, to use that and, and be loud and clear. And so even if it's an uncomfortable thing, you know it's better for your patients. So go ahead and say it. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, the, thank you for saying all of that. Um, and that, you know, that message really does come through in the language of your book, because as I was reading through it, the impression I got is that this this is a really nice blueprint for how to raise awareness about things people don't want to hear about. And it's not just medical errors. It can be, you know, topic, topics and problems in society that make people really uncomfortable, that they know is happening. They feel powerless to stop it. Maybe they don't know what happened. They don't want to face that it happened. I um, mean, we were talking a little bit about that um, before the show, but it's, I feel like the people who are going to relate to your work the best are the people who are you know, trying to fight a problem other people don't see, don't accept, and don't want to deal with. Thank you, and I and I hope that um, that, that sort of your generation of medical students, I think, is more comfortable confronting things who are coming of age in this very interesting time where, you know, people are, are looking differently about how to respond to things, and you know, there's a lot of chaos in our culture right now. Um, but the flip side of chaos is also freedom, and I think people have felt empowered mm. and freer to, to speak their mind about what's true in our society. And, and one thing that I, I recognize in, in the wake of COVID is that healthcare workers have been given a stronger voice. For the first time, for better or worse, society really values healthcare workers. I mean, each and every day, you know, when they clap at seven o'clock, which is you know lovely, even if we feel like listen, it's just doing our job. But we suddenly have this. Um, amount of stature in society, and we should use that, because what happens to our patients outside the walls of the hospitals matters to their health, and so it matters to us, and looking at the inequities, socioeconomic, racial inequities, um, religious inequities, all the things that, that come up that, that harm patients, uh, gender issues, these matter for our patients' health care, and I think we should use the voice that we've been given and to speak very loudly, I think that people will listen. So when you call your center and say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and and here's why I care about this issue for my patients, it carries some weight and we should really use that because part of our job is advocating for our patients, both in the healthcare system and outside of it as well. Uh, So one of the things, Dr. (laughs) Offer, you you mentioned in your book is how there can be issues when we get tunnel vision on just one implementation issue at a time in a hospital. And then how everything else that, you know, you do all this training on depression screenings and then every patient you see that day obviously gets an ICD-10 code of depression, you know, kind of thing. Um, But I'm wondering, are we experiencing the same thing right now with um, SARS-CoV-2? Uh, in the pandemic, because I have noticed there there does seem to be this this tunnel vision, and I've been increasingly concerned about the health people's health issues did not evaporate once this pandemic started. And how are you um, trying to combat that while also doing all hands on deck for fighting COVID nineteen? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, certainly for us in March and April, we were building the airplane while we were flying it, which was yeah. very nerve wracking. Now at least that we can catch our breath. I think it's time to to think really carefully that not just to go back to the way things were, 
but to see how we can do things better because you're a lot of patients suffered. And, and when I wrote the piece on things that went wrong during COVID, that was not always well received by, by many people who were very upset that, you know, we might criticize healthcare workers who've done so much and, and, and I, I'm not criticizing them at all, but recognizing no matter how hard we work, there are patients whose health suffered. I had a patient, I just saw him yesterday, but he had a mitral valve, you know, just on its last leaflet um, and ready to go to the OR, I think, March 17th. Mm. Um, and it got canceled because it was an emergency, but mm. it was, certainly wasn't elective. Mm. And so he's been hanging on with this, you know, little leaflet. He finally got it last week. But a lot of patients fell into that category of urgent things, you know, cancer surgeries and all these things that, you know, could wait a little bit, but not a lot. And many suffered in that wake. And so I think we have to, in planning for the next wave, which is surely coming, we have to think about both tracks at, at once. And and so I had a patient yesterday who complained amongst her million other things that she couldn't taste things like, oh my gosh, you've got COVID. And I thought, well, you know, she might, and I should test her for that, but I can't just leave it there. Like mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. things can happen too. And we have to be able to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, which I think we actually can do. Yeah, that goes back to your having a, a very broad list of differential diagnoses. And I see that is the, the biggest thing I've been challenged as coming as a background from a, as being a PA prior to coming to medical school is I feel like my differential diagnose, diagnosis list has been expanding and expanding and it's been really challenging me in a good way. Right. And to always ask yourself, you know, what else could it be? Mm -hmm. um, and then what can I not afford to miss? And those two questions are very helpful because we'll never be perfect in making a diagnosis, but at least that allows us to stop, help us counter some of our biases um, and, you know, make sure we consider more things. And I think that our biggest error is narrowing the differential too quickly. We're very quick with our heuristic of, oh, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck, and we go right for it. And we're often right. I mean, listen, if a patient comes in with, you know, burning their stomach and I pull Harrison's off the shelf and I start paging through, it, I hit page 1000 on reflux disease, I'll probably be correct. But of mm -hmm. course, I'll only see one patient a day. So of course, we have to use shortcuts in order to, you know, see as many patients as we do. But to always take a moment to stop ourselves and just ask again. And I think that moment of stopping yourself is also what we can do when we're trying to uh, counter our biases, our implicit biases, mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, patients with obesity, patients with mental illness, patients from racial or ethnic minorities, uh, elderly patients, um, all the patients who are historically discriminated against, we don't necessarily know that we're doing it. But if we stop ourselves in the moment and say, hey, wait a second, am I feeling something? Am I reacting a certain way? Let me just stop, reset. What if this patient were my mother? my child, my grandmother, how would I want them treated? And then take that moment and go back in. We won't be perfect. We will never be completely unbiased, but we might be able to at least catch ourselves in the moment and, you know, reset it a little bit. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your uh, being on the show today, uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Ofri. Um, to talk about your book, well, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error, where can uh, listeners find out more about you and your writing? Well, I keep all my articles on my website. It's just danielleofri.com. And I have a monthly ish newsletter that I'll mail out if uh, anyone wants, not commercial at all. And then I also want to mention the Bellevue Literary Review, which is our literary magazine. And we publish poetry, fiction, and nonfiction that deal with issues of health and healing. And when you've sort of had enough of Harrison's and you can't read another <laughs> issue of The Lancet, but you want to think about the, the nuances of medicine, um, that's where poetry and fiction and creativity really help us. And they address the needs where the top 10 tips about osteoporosis doesn't really uh, fit that bill. So check out the Bellevue Literary Review. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Aline, Jessica, what the? Yeah, Aline, Jessica, and <laughs> God, let me try that. Let me try that again. I didn't leave. I'm still here. I had a moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> Aline, Jessica, and Marissa, thank you for being my co-host today. It's so grateful to be here and meet Dr. Alfre digitally, yeah. that is. Virtually. It's been a pleasure. Maybe someday in person. Yeah, I hope so. I really do. <laughs> and what kind of garbage person would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are available. I remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean it can be what you want it to be about. Send questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com, or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT, and we'll talk about it on the show. Uh, we'd love to get some stars in a review, so while your podcast app is open, why don't you go ahead and leave us a review? We hope you'd be the kind of listener we'd be grateful for, uh, because it lets us know if we're doing this podcasting thing right. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and an ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. <laughs>